Would you pray with me as we begin? Our Father in heaven, we come now as your word is open before us. And again, we ask that you would come and be with us, that you would fill us with your spirit and enable us to to hear and to understand and to receive your word with joyful and glad hearts. Father, I ask that you would be with me as I seek to preach your word, to proclaim it to your people with clarity in a way that it is understandable. And I pray for them, Father, those who are sitting before me, may you enable them to to hear, to understand, to have open ears, open eyes, and open hearts. And in all the things that I say, Father, I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would receive all of the glory. This is about Him. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's all about Him, His gospel, and what He has done for us. We thank You for Your Word. May Your people be built up. Father, may Your purposes be fulfilled as we continue in Paul's letter this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are going to be continuing in our series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And what we have seen so far as we've been going through this letter for two weeks now, we have walked through Paul's greeting, which was in verses 1 to 5. And then last week we were walking through Paul's, what we called his initial rebuke, where he was moving from his greeting to the Galatian Christians... They were located in these series of churches in the province of Galatia. He moved from his greeting directly to rebuking them and then rebuking the false teachers that were in the churches seeking to deceive them. And now this morning we're going to be handling verses 10 to 24. And what we're going to be focusing on, what we're going to be seeing in these verses is that Paul is going to begin his defense against these false teachers. Now, we have, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen uh, a couple of parts in the greeting and in his initial abuke where Paul has said some things that show that he's defending himself. Like in verse 1 in the greeting, he says, Paul, an apostle... Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So there you can tell that he's defending his apostleship. And then in the initial rebuke that we saw in verses 6 to 9, he's defending the gospel. He's saying there's no other gospel. There's a defense going on there. But what we're going to see here is that Paul's about to lay out in great detail why you should believe what he's saying the claims that we've already seen him make and that he's about to make in these verses. He's going to lay out a detailed defense of why you should believe what he's saying. And this defense is going to last throughout the rest of chapter 1, all of these verses that we're about to look at, and it's going to go on into chapter 2. Pretty much the majority of chapter 2 and the rest of chapter 1, Paul is going to be defending himself against the the false teachers that were located in these churches and were deceiving the Galatian Christians. And why would Paul want to 
spill so much ink in creating this defense, right? I mean, you have pretty much the whole chapter of chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul devoting all of this writing to a defense against, or for himself and for the gospel. Why does he care so much? What's the big deal, right? Well, remember, like we were talking about in our first message, what's on the line here is not just Paul's reputation as an apostle. What's on the line is something far greater, and it's the gospel itself. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what that means for us as believers, how we are saved, how we have right standing with God. That is what's on the line here. That's what these false teachers are seeking to distort. And this is why Paul wants to lay out such a detailed defense on why you should believe what he's saying. And the way that he's going to lay out his defense is in four parts. Uh, the first part that we're going to see is in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 1. And in verses 10 to 12, Paul's going to begin his defense, and we're going to see uh, a couple of other accusations that these false teachers are making against him and against the gospel. And then he's going to tell us what he's defending. In his own words, he's going to tell us what he wants us to believe, what he is trying to defend. And then in verses 13 all the way down to verses 24, Paul is going to lay out these events, these circumstances, these situations that prove his point. I guess you could say he's laying out evidence of why you should believe him. From verses 13 to 24, he's laying out his evidence. He's arguing to you. He's laying out his argument before you. Originally, it was before the Galatian Christians, but now as we read this letter, his argument is laid before you. So are you going to believe him or not? But throughout verses 13 to 24, I'm going to divide that up in three sections. And the first thing that we're going to see in verses 13 and 14 is that Paul is going to bring before us who he was before his conversion, before he became a Christian. That proves that his claim is true. And then in verses 16 to the first part of, excuse me, verse 15 to the first part of verse 16, what happened at Paul's conversion proves that his claim is true. And then the second part of verse 16 down to verse 24, what happened after Paul's conversion proves that his claim is true. So you have those three parts, those three events that Paul's going to bring up in verses 13 to 24. So let's read these verses together and then we'll, we'll walk through them. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 6 and follow along as I read. Hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, 
So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They, were, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now, as I was reading those verses, especially the latter part of those verses, the second part of verse 16 down to verse 24, you could see that Paul, he names a lot of locations that he went to, that he traveled. And that's why that I have this map before you. When we get to verses 16 to 24, we'll look at this map. That way you can kind of see what Paul is talking about. Because without a map before you, it's kind of hard to see the point that Paul is trying to make there. But go back up with me to verse 10 and let's begin looking at Paul's defense, how he is defending himself. In verses 10 to 12, the first thing that we see as we read these verses is that Paul brings up another accusation that these false teachers were apparently making against him. Now we saw in verse 1 of chapter 1, that the false teachers were apparently saying that Paul was a second-hand apostle, or he was a second-rate apostle. He's not on par with the original twelve, those apostles. You know, his apostleship didn't come directly from from God or something like that. His apostleship is second-rate. They were trying to demean the Apostle Paul and his apostolic authority. And here in verse 10, it seems that they're also calling him a man-pleaser. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? Apparently they were telling the Galatians that the reason why Paul preaches what he preaches, you know, the gospel that he preaches the free grace of Jesus Christ by faith alone, in grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Paul preaches that just because he wants your favor. He wants you to like him. That's why he tells you that. 
He wants your favor. He's a man pleaser. He's not seeking to please God. He's not preaching the message of God. He wants you to think well of Him. That's why He says that. And then in verse 11, we have the third accusation brought up. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So the third accusation that Paul brings up is that these false teachers, the Judaizers, were apparently saying that Paul's gospel comes from man. So you have his apostleship, according to the Judaizers anyway, coming from man. He's a man pleaser. And thirdly, his gospel comes from man. So these are the three accusations that they're making against Paul. And these are the three accusations that we're about to see him put up a defense against. But the first thing that he says in his defense in verse 10, he says, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Look, Galatians, and now in our day, Alt's Chapel, if I were trying, or if I were seeking to please man, if I were seeking the approval of man, then I would not be a servant of Christ. And that word servant there literally means slave. Paul says he's a slave of Christ. And the picture that he's painting there is that Christ is his master. Jesus is his master and Paul is the servant. So Paul's life is lived in a way that he seeks to please his master. And as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, you can't serve two masters. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, and Jesus mentions money. He says you cannot serve God and money. The same thing is happening here. Paul is saying the same thing, except he doesn't mention money. He's saying that if I was seeking the approval of man, then I would not be serving Christ because man would be my master. That's who I would be seeking to serve, to please. And then he points to his life. He says, look at my life, how I live my life. You can tell by how I live my life that I don't seek the approval of man, but I seek to please my master, which is Christ. And think about what he just said in verses 6 to 9. You know, he called curses down on whoever would distort the gospel. Let them be accursed, whoever they may be. Does that sound like a man pleaser to you? If you seek to distort the gospel, man, let the curse of God be upon you. That does not sound like a man pleaser. That sounds like a man who is seeking to please his master, which is Christ. So that's the first thing that Paul appeals to as, as these accusa accusations are being made against him. And then we come down to verse 11 where he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And he responds, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So his response of getting his gospel from man is that, no, 
I didn't get it from man. I received it directly from Jesus Christ. I wasn't taught the gospel by any man. I received it directly from Jesus Christ. He is the one who taught me the gospel that I preach. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. And notice in verse 11 that he says, For I would have you know. I would have you know, Galatian Christians, Auld's Chapel. I would have you know that what I'm saying is true. He wants you to know that the argument that Paul is setting up for us, that he's about to set up for us in the following verses, you can know. You can look at these things and know for sure that what Paul is saying is true. He wants you to know. He wants you to be for sure. And then in verse 12, he tells us what he's going to prove to us. The fact that he didn't receive his gospel from man. He, he received it directly from Jesus Christ. That's what he's about to prove to us. Paul did not receive his gospel from man. He received it directly from Jesus Christ. And verses 13 all the way into in chapter 2, the majority of chapter 2, are going to prove what he just said in chapter 1. And you can also lump in there the other two accusations that we just looked at. That Paul received his apostleship from man and that he's a man pleaser. Paul is also going to prove that he did not receive his apostleship, his authority from man, and he's also going to prove that he's not a man pleaser in the things to come, in these verses. Verses 13 all the way into... Chapter 2. But for now, we're only going to see three. And the first one that we're going to look at in verses 13 to 14 is who Paul was before his conversion. Who Paul was before his conversion proves that his claim in verse 12 and that his apostleship comes directly from Christ and that he's not a man-pleaser. Who Paul was before his conversion proves this. What does he say in verse 13? He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Again, you have heard. You've heard of who I was. What my former life was like. You have heard about this. This is not something that Paul is pulling out of thin air. That he's making up. You've heard about it, Galatians. You've heard about who I was. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Stop there. Before Paul was a Christian, his religion, his system of belief, was Judaism. He was a faithful Jew. And not only was he a faithful Jew, not only was his religion Judaism, which was very opposed to the gospel of Christ, by the way, not only was he all of these things, not only was that his religion, but he says that he persecuted the church of God violently. 
He persecuted the church of God, Christians, violently and tried to destroy it. Paul's aim in life was to destroy a church like this. A gathering of people who sought to give glory to Christ, to worship Jesus. Paul's aim in his life was to destroy things like this, gatherings like this. He hated it. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 9 and in the beginning of Acts where you have the the martyrdom of Stephen. Luke recounts there in the book of Acts that when Paul, excuse me, when Stephen was martyred, that they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, which was Paul, before he was called Paul. Paul approved of Stephen's death. He was glad to see Stephen be martyred. And he felt that way about all Christians. Because what did Christ come to do? He, became, he came to fulfill the law. And so now you have Paul, who's a faithful Jew, and who has lived his life believing all of these things, and Jesus Christ comes on the scene and says, it is finished, I've completed all of this. Which says that Paul, who is depending on the law for righteousness, that's all gone. Jesus has just crumbled Paul's religion to the ground. And Paul's not going to have that. So he seeks to destroy the Christian church. He persecutes it. He wants to destroy it. And then he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In other words, Paul was not warming up to the fact of Christianity. He was not thinking in his mind and in his heart, you know what, you know, maybe Christianity's not so bad. You know, maybe I'll you know, try it out for a little while and see what these Christians are all about. No, he was headed in the exact opposite direction. Not only did he persecute the, the church of God violently, not only was he a faithful Jew, but he says he was advancing far beyond any of his own age. He was zealous for the tradition of his fathers. Passionate. He had a great passion for what he did. He was not headed in any direction toward Christ. It was not on his mind. He wasn't thinking about it. He was headed in the direct opposite. Then look what he says in verse 15. But... You know, the the wonderful buts in in Scripture that you have there. (laughs) But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. We're moving now into what happened at Paul's conversion. So we just looked at who Paul was before his conversion. And now this is what happened at Paul's conversion. And again, in Acts chapter 9, Luke tells us what happened there in more detail. That he was on his way to Damascus to persecute and to kill more Christians. You know, to drag them out of their houses. But, 
as Paul says in verse 15, but when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. The first thing that sticks out to us in these verses is again that this wasn't Paul's idea. Because think, what did we just look at in his pre-conversion state? He's headed in the direct opposite direction. You know, he's going directly in the opposite way, direction of Christ. He's not headed toward Christ at all. But then you have God, which is the He, but when He who had set me apart before I was born called me by His grace. God is the initiator here in Paul's conversion. This was not Paul's idea. Paul did not all of a sudden turn and say, Hey, I want Christ. I want to be a Christian. No, God appeared on the Damascus Road, revealed the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son to him, on the Damascus Road, knocked him down to the ground. And after that, Paul's life was different. It was very different. This was not Paul's idea. God was the initiator here. God set Paul apart before he was born. And God is the one who called Paul by His grace. Again, this is not something that Paul earned by works. Grace. God called him in His grace, giving Paul what he did not deserve. Paul didn't do anything to deserve this gift that God had given him. And then God is the one who revealed His Son, Jesus Christ, to Paul in order that he might preach Christ among the Gentiles. So you have God calling Paul, doing the calling, doing the initiating, doing the revealing His Son to Paul, calling Him in His grace. And then you have God commissioning Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. God is the one who's doing the commissioning here. And if you were to go back and read in Acts chapter 9, what happens there in Paul's conversion, you will see that Jesus Christ is the one who directly told Paul what his mission was. Going back to what Paul said in verse 12, I didn't receive it from any man. I received it directly from Christ. He's the one who gave me my apostleship. He's the one who gave me my gospel. He's the one who commissioned me for my mission. It came directly through Christ. And as Paul says in verse 10, from that moment on, he was a servant of Christ. His master was no more Judaism. That was no longer his master. His master was no longer the law, trying to appease God or stand in righteousness before God by His own works. His Master was now Christ. He used His life to serve Christ. And this is, you know, the same for us. Now, we're not going to be called as apostles... As we've been talking about, there are no more apostles. 
The apostles are dead. God commissioned the apostles. He gave them their mission. But, like Paul, God is the initiator in our faith. God is the initiator in our salvation. If you are a Christian this morning, God is the one who initiated your salvation. Like Paul, from what the Bible as a whole tells us, like Paul, we were not headed towards Christ. Psalm 14, David spells that out pretty clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. None of us in and of ourselves were looking for Christ. None of us were looking for the gospel. We were very happy in our own sin. You know, we liked our sin. Our desires were enslaved to our sin. That's the argument that Paul lays out in the book of Romans. And again, in the beginning of Romans, Paul lays out, pulling from passages like Psalm 14, that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We all, like Paul, were not seeking after God. But God, in His mercy, in His grace, sought after you. He revealed His Son to you in His grace. If you are a Christian, you didn't earn it. Which is what the book of Galatians is all about, right? What we've been talking about. You are justified by grace alone. Not by your works. You know, salvation is a free gift. You haven't earned it. So our conversion is the same as Paul's conversion that we see laid out here in Galatians chapter 1. And whenever we are saved by God, when He reveals His Son to us and we become Christians, like Paul, we become servants of Christ. He is our master. We no longer, to, we no longer seek to, to please ourselves. We no longer seek to please the world. We seek to please our master, which is Christ. Now again, the service that God has appointed us to is not exactly like Paul's. We're not an apostle. We're not called to, to go and be missionaries you know, to the Gentile Christians and plant churches like Paul did. But we are called to serve Christ. So what does that look like for us, Christians? If someone was to to look at your life, could they see that you, like Paul, are no longer different or the same as you were? You know, your pre-conversion state, who you were in Christ. Could somebody look at your life and say or tell, you know, in some measure that you are different. That you serve a new master, I guess you could say. That you no longer seek to please yourself. You no longer seek to to please the world. You're no longer a man pleaser, like Paul says in verse 10. You no longer seek the, the approval of man, but you seek the approval of God. Could someone see that in your life? Could they see that you first and foremost, seek to please the Lord Jesus Christ? Could they see that you are a servant of Jesus? 
And this is in, you know, all of life. This isn't just here, you know, in this room as we gather together as Christians. When God calls you, when He reveals His Son to you in His grace, and you become a Christian, God does not just call you to serve when you come to church on Sunday mornings. He does not just call you to serve when you come to church on Wednesday nights. When Jesus Christ becomes Lord and Master over you, He is Lord and Master over all of your life, right? Jesus Christ is Lord over all. He's Lord over all of your life, which means that when you leave here and you go to your house and you watch TV or whatever, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you spend time with your wife, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you spend time with your children, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you go to bed at night, Jesus Christ is Lord. When you wake up in the morning and you go to work, Jesus Christ is Lord. And He expects you to be serving Him in certain ways. You know, be making much of Him, glorifying Him, serving Christ. So are we doing that Alts Chapel? Do we serve Christ in those ways? Can the world look at us and see that we do not seek the approval of man, but we seek the approval of God in Christ? Can people see that? If not, then we need to go back to what Paul says happens at his conversion. Have we really come to know Christ? You know, not just know about Him like we know movie stars on TV. You know, when you watch TV, you have, you know, your favorite movies or whatever. You know the movie star on the TV screen. Yeah, I know who that is. But if you were to go up to that person, that, that movie star that you really liked, and you say, hey, buddy, how you doing? They're going to look at you like you're nuts, probably. I don't know you. What are you doing? Get away from me. It's the same with Christ. Do you just know about Jesus? Or do you actually know Him? And are you known by Christ? Because one day you will appear before Christ and there will be some who say, Hey Lord, did we not serve You and, pro and proclaim Your Word and do many miracles in Your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. Those are people who just knew about Jesus. They, they knew who He was, but they were not known by Christ. They did not have an intimate relationship with Christ. And it's that intimate relationship with Christ that results in the change that we see here in Paul's conversion. Paul had seen the risen Christ. He had seen Him and believed wholeheartedly. In that moment, Paul knew that what he saw was not a hallucination. He saw and he knew that what I'm seeing, this man who's speaking to me is Lord. You remember what Paul said? He said, who are you, Lord? In that moment, Paul knew that his religion was over. Everything that I've believed is over. I have seen the King of kings and the Lord of lords. My life is now different. 
And again, it's the same for us. Not exactly the same. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ is probably not going to appear before you, knock you on your hindquarters and blind you for a few days. That's probably not going to happen. But when God reveals His Son to you, something is going to happen. Change is going to happen. You cannot behold and know Christ and nothing happen. I remember whenever... I first became a Christian and began to really understand the gospel, really understand who Christ was. There was there was change within me. You know, I was no longer the same person anymore. At one point in my life whenever I was 18 years old, God began to draw himself draw me to himself. He began to draw me to himself began to convict me of my sin, began to show me that, you know, not only have I, you know, just done bad things, but I've sinned directly against God. My sins are against Him. And then over the course of a, you know, a time frame, I can't really say the exact day. You know, some people can remember the exact day when they became Christians and others can't. But at one point, God revealed His Son to me. And I beheld Christ as He actually is. You know, the risen Lord. My greatest joy, the highest treasure. King over all, infinite in every way. When I began to see and to understand those things, you know, like Paul, I, I, understand, I understood that my way of life is, is over. Who I once was is, is over. I remember, and I I refer to this series a lot because it was very groundbreaking for me in my my Christian walk very early on, uh, the Blazing Center with John Piper, whenever he was laying out, uh, being fully satisfied in Christ, Christ being the greatest joy and what that means. Whenever I heard that for the first time, that Jesus Christ is all-satisfying, He's the greatest joy, He's the highest treasure, and to know Christ means that you find satisfaction and you find joy in Him. When I heard that, that changed everything. Whenever you understand that what you read in the Bible, what you see about Christ is true, that this is real, you know, what I'm reading, actually, it's true. If Jesus Christ really is the greatest joy, if He really is my greatest satisfaction, then that means that something has to change. When you understand that the Bible is true and that what God is saying is true, it results in a change. Something happens. And it happened to me... And I pray that it's happened to you whenever you came to know Christ, if you truly know Christ and are known by Him. You know, a change results. You are no longer who you once were. You are now a servant of Christ. You no longer seek the approval of man. You seek the approval of God. The third thing that Paul brings up, his, his third piece of evidence that we see in these verses, verses 13 to 24. 
what happened after Paul's conversion proves Paul's claims. So what happened after Paul's conversion? What evidence do we find here proves what he's saying, his argument is true? He says in the second part of verse 16, he says, I did not immediately, so after his conversion, after he came to to see Christ, to know Christ, to trust Christ, I did not immediately consult with anyone or literally flesh and blood. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. He's again saying, Galatian Christians, Auld's Chapel, what I'm saying is true. You can ask people about this. The Galatians could anyways. You know, go ask the apostles in Jerusalem. Go ask what happened. I'm not lying to you. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They, were, they only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now, after reading those verses, I'm going to walk through this map with you guys, kind of help you understand what Paul is trying to get across by naming these different locations that he's talking about. So, whenever Paul in his pre-conversion state was headed to Damascus, you know, that's what, uh, according to Acts chapter 9, Paul receives these papers, this permission from the high priest there, to be able to go and to persecute Christians in Damascus. So he receives that in Jerusalem from the high priest, and he's on his way to Damascus to go kill some more Christians, you know, to go imprison them and persecute them. But somewhere along the way, the risen Christ says, Oh no, that's not my plan. As he says, God, before he was born, had set Paul apart for his purposes. And so somewhere along the line here in his journey, the risen Christ appears to Paul and he's a new man. He is now a Christian. Well, he continues on into Damascus. Again, according to Acts chapter 9, he's blinded at this point and he has to meet with this man named Ananias. And Ananias lays his hands on Paul, gives him his sight back, and he begins to preach the gospel in Damascus for a few days, for a short amount of time. And then... As Paul says in the latter part of chapter 1, the verses we were just reading, beginning in the second part of verse 16, he says, after that, I don't go back down here to Jerusalem, you know, where the apostles were, where apparently the false teachers were saying Paul went down there and got his, his apostleship and his gospel second-handedly. Well, Paul says, I didn't go down there where the apostles were located at. I went over here into Arabia. I went away from the apostles where nobody of influence was. I went away. And we don't know why Paul went into Arabia. We don't know exactly what he was doing there. But then he returns after a time, 
back to Damascus. And then after three years of preaching the gospel in Damascus, there's a threat upon his life, and then he travels then down to Jerusalem. After three years. So at that point, Paul's had a lot of time to think about the gospel that's been proclaimed to him by Christ, right? He's already thought through it. He's been preaching. He's been in ministry. Then he goes down, and he only goes to Jerusalem for 15 days. And he meets with two apostles. He only meets with two. Peter, as he says, Cephas, and then James, the Lord's brother, who is apparently considered one of the apostles. And he only meets with them 15 days. That's not enough time to be taught or to be given a full-out gospel message. Paul says he only goes to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. Just to get to know him. He, He already knows his gospel. He's already been preaching it. He does not receive it from those apostles. He's already received it from Christ. And so he stays there for 15 days, and again, because of a threat upon his life, he has to leave. And then he goes, as he says in Galatians chapter 1, he leaves Jerusalem, and he goes into Syria and to Cilicia. And in the midst of all this, he says that he was unknown to the Christians that were in Judea, again, where the apostles were at. They only heard him by word of mouth. They heard about him by word of mouth. They hadn't seen his face. He wasn't preaching in this area. He went away. And so what Paul's point is, like he said in verse 12, I didn't receive my gospel from man. I didn't seek my apostolic authority from man. I don't seek the approval of man. I seek to approve the approval of my Master, which is Christ. And my pre-conversion state proves that. What happened at my conversion proves that. And then what happened afterward proves that. Because what does he say? Look down at verse 24. What does he say? In the midst of all of this, what happened? And they glorified God because of me. Not Paul. They didn't bring glory to Paul. They brought glory to God. Paul's life ultimately gives glory to God. And it gives glory to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Christian, as we look at Paul's life, You know, in a way, even though we're not an apostle, we're still Christians and we're still called to proclaim the gospel message. And in everything we do, it's called to bring glory to Christ. So are we seeking the approval of man? Is there change in our life that people can see that backs up our gospel message? that what we preach, that what we proclaim is real, it's legitimate. You know, we're not just hollow preachers that just speak words but don't have actions that, you know, back it up. Can people see that among us? Can what we, by what we say, by what we do, does that bring glory to Christ? Does it bring glory to God? If not then we should be concerned and we should be examining our lives. We should be looking at our lives and seeing 
What do people see when they see you? When you're at work, when you're at home, when you have conversations with people, what do they see? Do they see Christ being glorified? Or do they see you being made much of? And as we continue in the weeks to come throughout chapter 2, Paul is going to continue to bring up more arguments, more pieces of evidence that prove what we were just looking at. That his his apostolic authority comes directly from God, his gospel comes directly from God, and that he's not a man-pleaser. In the weeks to come, Paul is going to continue to prove that to us. Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank you for the Apostle Paul. Father, we thank you for this man who you used long ago to preach and to proclaim your word, your gospel that you gave to him, your message. And we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel message that we too, in the, in the 21st century, thousands of years afterward, we can still receive this gospel message of grace, that we can be right with you, that we can be justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, and that it's all for your glory and not ours. And Father, if there is someone here as we've been considering these verses, as we've, as we've been looking at the argument that Paul's been laying out before us, I pray that they would be convicted by the words of the Apostle, that they would see that this is not just some fantasy. These, these things that Paul's bringing up, he's not just pulling them out of the air. Father, these things are legitimate. They are real. Our faith as Christians is not just shots in the dark. There is real foundation to stand on. Father, may you show them, may you reveal to them in your grace, your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.